To its critics, Fox News has been derided as state TV, a propaganda arm of Donald Trump's presidency that shamelessly promotes the White House agenda and mercilessly attacks the president's critics with often baseless charges. But Brian Stelter, CNN's media critic, offers a slightly more sophisticated understanding of the relationship in his new book, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. It's not Trump who tells Fox what to say and air on its network. It's Fox who supplies the talking points and often the policy ideas for Trump. We'll talk to Stelter about how he reached that conclusion, and we'll talk to reporter Patrick Sims about what is happening on the streets of Portland, Oregon, as Black Lives Matter protesters and counter-protesters from Trump world clash in increasingly violent confrontations on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. I think it's little question that the violence growing out of some of these protests has changed the conversation in the campaign. It's clearly, as we've pointed out before, a wedge issue that the Trump campaign is going to do everything it can to push and use to energize its base and uh, scare people about the prospect of a Biden presidency. There's some signs that it's working. Our own Yahoo News YouGov poll shows the race tightening in the last few days from nine points before the conventions to six points now. And so I think this is, you know, right now, the central issue in the campaign. Yeah, in this particular moment. And Joe Biden, you know, he uh, finally is uh, getting out there and doing some physical campaigning. I think he's been smoked out by this situation. He was in Pittsburgh today giving, I think, what people think was a fairly forceful speech about these issues, going after Trump for stirring up the violence, pointing out that this is Trump's America in which this is happening. He has to own the moment. He started by saying, ask yourself, do I look like a radical socialist with a soft spot for rioters? Really? And then he went on to say, I'm going to be very clear about all of this. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. None of this is protesting. It's lawlessness, plain and simple. The problem is this campaign is now being fought on Donald Trump's terrain. And Joe Biden wants to, I'm sure, needs to get back to a discussion of Trump's handling, disastrous handling of the coronavirus pandemic and the um, economic collapse left in its wake. And that's hard to do when there is rioting and protesting, mostly protesting, but also rioting and violence going on in American cities. So the extent that that spreads, that is going to be a challenge for Joe Biden. 
president is expected to go to Kenosha, Wisconsin this week. Yeah, that what's be, that? How's that, that going to play? Th- that is going to be a provocative trip. We don't know yet. There's some talk that he's reached out to the Blake family, but uh, they have not been very receptive to that. So there's a lot of unknowns here. And, um, you know, I think uh, this is tricky territory for for Joe Biden. And let's not forget the role of Fox News in this. Uh, We're going to be talking to Brian Stelter about that in a little bit. But uh, there's no question if you tune into Fox News at all, these protests and the violence, images of the violence is just playing nonstop on Fox News and sort of serving the president's interests here in keeping this issue front and center. It's, an, uh, it's it, absolutely it's another example of, you know, the split screen America that we are experiencing these days and you know, you saw it on the Sunday shows over the weekend where Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, was responding to the point that Biden has made that the violence is happening on Trump's watch. And his response was, there is calm and law and order in Trump's America, as if we're not one country. So um, I think we should expect to see a lot more of that as this uh, campaign unfolds. Right. All right. Well, we'll be talking uh, to Stelter in a moment about uh, Fox News and the role they're playing. But before we do that, we've got on the ground in Portland, our uh, contributor, Patrick Sims, who can give us a little better idea of what exactly went down in Portland over the weekend and what we know about it. So key to understanding the political debate going on right now. So let's get right to it. We now have with us, straight from Portland, Oregon, Patrick Sims, a freelance journalist who specializes in uh, reporting on political extremism and protests. Patrick, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. So, look, a lot of attention about what's going on in Portland right now, especially with that shooting on Saturday night, which seems to have ramped up anxieties across the political spectrum. What do we know about what happened in Portland on Saturday night? Well, there was a, you know, a large pro-Trump caravan that formed outside the city in Clackamas County, which is, you know, as soon as you leave the city of Portland, you notice a change. Clackamas is more pro-Trump. It's more blue collar. You see Trump flags in front of people's houses. It's known a little derisively by its own residents as Clackistan. And this large convoy, about a thousand people, pickup trucks, trucks, started driving into the city. And I knew nothing about it, but I actually was shocked. There was this incredibly loud noise and they passed through my neighborhood. That's the first I heard. I thought it was a Portland Trailblazers celebration. Maybe they'd won their latest game against LA, but no, it was a loud caravan passing through the city. And originally, they the Portland police did respond and sort of headed the caravan off and tried to keep it from going into downtown. But eventually, many vehicles broke off, went into downtown, and got into a whole series of confrontations in the streets at around six, seven in the evening. That's included counter protesters kind of spontaneously forming up and booing them. And, you know, people started throwing water bottles, some of these guys who were in quite a few cases dressed in a somewhat paramilitary style with the tactical vests and using 
mace and pepper spray against protesters and it began to accelerate and get tenser and tenser there were this uh, well-known clip now of a, some guys with paintball guns shooting at protesters which is a pretty painful assault uh and in the midst of this president trump went on twitter and was promoting this and, and cheering it on and encouraging this you know responding to that video of the paintball gun saying of course people are going to do this to paraphrase him so by about nine o'clock that evening attention kept building the caravan was sort of breaking up and wandering in bits and pieces through portland and at some point a member of the Patriot Prayer Group was shot dead with a bullet to the chest. Hey, Patrick, before uh, we get to the Patriot Prayer Group, which you know something about, and I want to get into that, you said something that I wanted to just come back to for a second, which is while this caravan is heading through the streets of Portland and these pro-Trump people are, are firing paintballs at the protesters, and we, you know we all saw the video of that, Trump tweets... In real time, I mean, while this is I mean, before the shooting that you were about to talk about, that's where he calls these people great patriots. That's right. It was live tweeting uh, well before the shooting. Immediately, Trump retweeting that video of the paintball fight and, you know, kind of whooping up the crowd and saying this is justified uh, and necessary as he has continued done pretty continuously with Portland. And obviously, he's made extensive attacks on the mayor of Portland. Now he's in a real yeah. fury of. Okay, I just didn't, I, I didn't realize, I, I somehow I didn't realize that it had happened in real time. Okay, carry on with the narrative here. The shooting is a little mysterious so far, but apparently maybe an anti-Trump protester shot this pro-Trump supporter of Patriot Prayer, and that's a local Christian-based pro-Trump group which has been at the forefront in portland for in battles for years now going back to 2017 it's patriot prayer and their leader joey gibson who has called for many of these alt-right rallies in portland going back to 2017 2017 2018 and he would you know he's a i had a chance to see him in person in idaho at a pro-militia rally and he's a very energetic sort of manic street preacher young guy looks like a skateboarder and he rallies a certain element but his group actually isn't that big so he always calls for support and this is where it gets dangerous because other groups come in to support patriot prayer typically the proud boys a kind of alt-right fist fighting group that looks to dominate the streets and uh, physically own the libs and antifa and they show up in larger numbers patriot prayer is a small group but the allies pro-trump or christian or otherwise see whatever their motivations have kind of rallied around patriot prayer and so you find them at the core of a lot of these demonstrations demanding what they say is free speech in portland but it looks very provocative to me you know nobody was challenging their free speech they drove 25 miles from a shopping mall in Clackamas County into downtown Portland to carry out this demonstration. It's probably a self-fulfilling prophecy that they wanted to see some sort of counteraction. So, Patrick, I just want to be clear on something. The allegations, and we should stress these are allegations at this point, is that one of the protesters, the Black Lives Matter protesters, fatally shoots a patriot prayer person who would come there for these rallies. Did we know, have the original protesters, the Black 
Lives Matter protesters had guns and weapons there before? I have been, you know, I was at protests three or four nights and I never saw any weapon other than a wooden stick. Uh, I've seen people throwing eggs and water bottles, but no guns. So this is the first time we've seen an actual shooting coming from the original set of protesters. I guess the question in my mind is, does this represent an escalation? Are they starting to bring weapons now, like firearms, to these protests? Or was this an aberration? And, and, and just to be clear, has anybody been arrested for the shooting? Well, it clearly it is an escalation. Is it an aberration? It's one person who did this, but given the tensions going on, it must be the case that this is an, an acceleration of what's going on, a feedback loop that's very dangerous, in my opinion. Uh, there are no arrests yet, and police have not identified a suspect. There's various claims and allegations being made, and common sense would tell you it probably is an anti-Trump figure who did this shooting, but we don't have public information yet. And what is the mood in Portland right now? Uh, You were actually out there last night. What did you see? Well, I had, uh, you know, I grabbed my usual Portland riots survival kit, which I have on my desk here, which is a pair of goggles and a wet bandana. And I rolled downtown to the federal courthouse, dead quiet, not a soul around, um, empty, deserted, dark streets, I saw that online the right-wing journalist Annie Ngo was claiming, you know, two minutes ago, Laurelhurst Park has been taken over by Antifa, I'm paraphrasing, and, you know, they're celebrating the death of this Patriot Prairie. So I drove straight over to Laurelhurst Park. Seven minutes later, I'm in the park, dead quiet, completely dark, not a person around. So then I went on to the uh, Police Benevolent Association in North Portland that's been the scene of many incidents. Again, dead quiet, not a soul around. So I'm not seeing uh, a city that's under siege in any way, shape, or form. There are days, obviously, when people are coming together, but I think that reflects the fear and anxiety that's happening right now as we face a new level of violence. You know, the idea that these demonstrations are accelerating from a low-level violence of you know, tear gas and non-lethal munitions to now both sides bringing guns is daunting to people who thought they were going to be engaged in peaceful pro- protests. And let me point out that it's clear someone brought a gun to that issue, uh, that fight last night on Saturday night and killed a Patriot Prayer member. But video clearly shows that numerous members of the caravan were not just armed, but openly armed with assault rifles. Uh, and they had, you know, rooftop snipers watching the scene where they organized. So both sides appear now to be armed. So I see, uh, Patrick, where uh, the governor, Kate Brown, a Democrat, announced today a plan to curb violence by bringing back in the Oregon State Police to Portland. There has also been talk of the National Guard coming in. Where does that stand? And how are the protesters responding to the governor saying she's going to um, bring back in the uh, state police? Well, I think there's a division in the protest movement where 
you know, a core of people who have been, you know, generally Black Lives Matter activists and other sort of very hardcore committed people have been facing off for long before the federal troops arrived in Portland with local police. And so they're not going to be pleased or thrilled to hear Governor Kate Brown saying, oh, well, we're going to bring in state troopers. But most protesters, when I was there at a moment when the protests were peaking in terms of numbers with thousands of people present, the motivating reason that most people cited to me was the presence of federal troops. So state troopers are seen in a very different light. State troopers are accountable to the governor. The governor is accountable to us. So I think it won't provoke the same public reaction at all. I think the core of protesters who've been at it longest complain that the mayor and the governor are responsible for tear gassing us. But I think the vast majority of Oregonians will not have a problem with state police officers supplementing local police. So, Pat, when, you know, when America was normal, if you had an episode like this where there was violence in the streets, where, you know, people were getting killed, you would have the local officials and the federal government come together to try to quiet things down. But this is not the America that we're living in right now. So instead, we have a clash between the president, and the mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler. I just noticed on Twitter today, Trump calling Ted Wheeler a wacko radical and a dummy. Of course, he's firing back at Wheeler, who gave a press conference over the weekend in which he said, do you seriously wonder, Mr. President, why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence and telling him to, to get the hell out? So give us a sense of how the politics here is, rather than calming things down, is kind of escalating uh, tensions and firing things up. Well, Dan, you know, I spent much of my career reporting in Latin America where street violence and, you know, confronting the police and riot squads and tear gas was a normal part of journalism and something that happened all the time. I have not done that kind of reporting in America before. Now it's happening in, you know, mile from my house. So I do feel like we're, we're shifting to a different style of broad politics. This is not just a Portland issue. This kind of violence in politics is cropping up around the country. You see it in Bethel, Ohio, when pro-Trump demonstrators come beat BLM protesters. You can see it in small towns in Illinois or Montana or wherever. It's happened hundreds of times now that vigilante groups are stepping forward uh, whether it's in Kenosha or here in Portland, to try to support police. I do think it's a new level of violence than we have seen, and it's an organizing principle. Let's recall that in her last interview on Fox News, Kellyanne Conway acknowledged that the president benefited from chaos, the president benefited from fear and violence in the streets, and that that would help his reelection effort. Trump is a chaos candidate. He wants to stir up a feud with Ted Wheeler in Portland or anyone else that he can in order to have enemies to run against. It's a very effective strategy. Is there an appreciation or on the part of the local officials in Portland and perhaps some of the protesters that the chaos and images of violence are playing into Trump's hands here? Michael, I have not seen evidence that any protesters are either aware of that or care about it. I think that there has been a 
fierce debate about the role of nonviolence in these protests. Should they be nonviolent? At the protests I've been at, at least 90%, probably 95% of protesters were not just acting in a nonviolent way, they were openly speaking about the importance of nonviolence, carrying peace signs, etc. So the tactic of you know smashing windows or breaking things or setting fires has been hotly debated and it has never been stopped by that argument it continues there's always you know 100 young people who are angry and are willing to start you know setting fire to the front doors of the police benevolent association in portland i don't think that that argument has been resolved and you know even these latest violent incidents are are not I, I don't see these protesters that I've talked to caring a whit about the idea for nonviolence. That's to say the 5% who are breaking things will continue to do so. But what about the police and local officials there? Is there, have they been carrying out arrests? Have they been enforcing the laws? Or, you know, what have they been doing to push back against the perception that Trump is uh, capitalizing on? that uh, not the peaceful protesters, but the very small minority of rioters are running wild in the streets of Portland. Well, Mayor Ted Wheeler has actually been a strong advocate for aggressive policing in this. He has, his nickname among the protesters is Tear Gas Ted, because he was responsible for weeks and weeks of police efforts by Portland police to you know, tear gas and control, disturbances downtown, constant arrests. He is himself, he's the mayor, but he appointed himself police commissioner. Uh, that is central to his identity. So up until the last few weeks, he was strongly associated with the repressive police operations in the city, the arrests, the tear gas, efforts to block protests. It's only when the problem was federalized and Trump came into the issue that Wheeler, effectively in his rhetoric switched sides and became you know he went from tear gassing protesters to speaking to them at their rallies and he was booed off stage and is widely despised by a lot of protesters literally just you could not even speak he was being booed so hard and he famously got tear gassed himself at one of these events when the federal police came out of the downtown courthouse so he's kind of in an ambiguous middle position where i don't think either side really trusts him, but he also seems to have found his voice in his antagonism with Trump. He has kind of emotionally now sided with the justice of of the protests, even as he oversees the police department going out and arresting people on a nightly basis. I mean, this has not stopped the location of the violence has changed. Patrick, you talk about uh, Ted Wheeler being in this ambiguous middle position. As we talk to you, Joe Biden is giving a high-profile speech in Pittsburgh in which um, he is addressing uh, these issues as well as coronavirus. Seems to me that he's in an ambiguous middle position as well. Given what you know about the trends, not just in this country, but around the world uh, toward more authoritarianism, populism, nationalism, all of these isms, what should Joe Biden be doing? How should he walk this line and how difficult a position is he in politically? It's a very difficult position for him. It's an inherently weak position and you can see it modeled in Ted Wheeler's situation in Portland or in Biden's position nationally. It's happened to the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, where you need to 
be against rioting and against looting and for some form of law and order, but obviously this political context has shifted mass demonstrations. The majority of Americans say they identify, you know, with Black Lives Matter. So it's a very tough position. There's a reason Donald Trump wants to box people into these positions, because you cannot be a credible candidate to a sort of middle section of America if you are raising your fist and walking through clouds of tear gas with protesters. At the same time, it opens Joe Biden to charges of hypocrisy if he says, well, I support law and order, but then he's not really doing what satisfies law and order advocates. I will point out, yeah, I will point out that in our latest Yahoo News YouGov poll, which showed a, a tightening in the race from, I think, 11 points to six points, the area where Trump has gained considerable ground and Joe Biden has lost ground is perception of strength. Um, And Trump has gotten a boost there, and that is exactly what he's going for. And Dan, you asked, because I report overseas so much, Turkey, Brazil, whatever, what you see in these strongmen and what Trump is doing is communicating at that level at a perception of strength, a perception, this symbolic values are so powerful emotionally for people who want to bypass questions of legality or concentrate their power. It's very common that people, you know, a a dictator in Latin America or a strong man in Europe or Asia will try to use, you know, to provoke and seek enemies within the country. These are standard tactics for an authoritarian. Us versus them is the critical tool for organizing electoral prospects. And so every day that this gets worse probably is going to benefit Trump with some voters. Now, obviously there's, you know, I've seen this new Yahoo News data, the polling, it's very interesting. And there's a lot of potential there for Trump to gain ground on law and order issues. But at the same time, he's making people very nervous. This is on his watch. It's expanding. It's getting worse. What was, you know, if Portland's an example, this started as small protests and it's inflamed, it's out of control. Now we've got shootings in the streets. It's getting very scary for people. And fear is one of the most powerful motivators the human being feels. And it makes you more conservative. There is neuro, strong neuroscience showing that when we are afraid, we make decisions in a more conservative way. We think more conservatively. We believe in punishment more strongly. So fear itself, as, as they say, fear itself is what we have to fear. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. I just want to make uh, one more point quickly, which is uh, part of the, the debate at the presidential, you know, in the presidential race is Trump saying this violence is happening under Donald Trump. This is this. He has to own this moment in America. But it's amazing to see the response from Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, on one of the Sunday shows, talking about there being, no, no, there's order in Trump's America. He literally said Trump's America and chaos and violence in Democrat-controlled cities. So it's this kind of open acknowledgement that there is a Trump's America and there's a Democratic America. And 
not rising above that and saying what what Barack Obama said in 2004, there's one America. I, I think that uh, Meadows, the chief of staff, and Trump would say Democrat America, not Democratic America. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. In fact, he, he did uh, say. But I think look, that, yeah. just to wrap up here, um, the uh, you know, the, of course, the dilemma for Biden is, on the one hand, he has people saying that in light of the tightening of the race and the mounting fears about violence in the streets. He needs to do a sister soldier moment like um, Bill Clinton did in 1992, making it absolutely clear that he has no sympathy or support for violent protests. Uh, But at the same time, time, if he goes too far, does he risk alienating all those citizens, including, you know, millions of uh, uh, people of color and minorities who have been energized by the Black Lives Matter movement? And uh, that's a tough position for him to be in. I agree, Mike. I, you know, many politicians confront that so-called sister soldier moment. How do they distance themselves and send that signal, that emotional powerful signal that they're going to, you know, not tolerate certain kinds of behavior or something. But that did end up hurting Bill Clinton in a lot of ways. It's a legacy that decades later we're still talking about. So Joe Biden may have more tools in his arsenal than that. I don't know uh, if in the country's present mood where you've seen a really unprecedented kind of identification with Black Lives Matter, Uh, in all parts of the society, obviously not everyone. There's Trump's America, he alleges, and another America. But I do think, you know, at this point, that's going to play poorly with the tens of millions of people who think Black Lives Matter is justified, and it could be a risky strategy. Well, Patrick, I want to thank you again for keeping us up to date. You know, stay safe out there, and um, I am sure we will be back to you as uh, the protests and continues, hopefully not. Okay, Mike, I got my goggles on. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Get back out there, man. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. Bye-bye. We now have with us for a return appearance on Skullduggery, Brian Stelter, a media reporter for uh, CNN and author of the new book, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. And anchor of Reliable Sources. And anchor of Reliable Sources, of course. I think you have all the titles now. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Brian, welcome back. Congrats on the book. Thank you. Thank you. I wish I didn't have to write a book like this. I wish there were no hoaxes. <laughs> I, I actually, I was going to say, I know, Isikoff, if you wanted to jump in with a question, but since you kind of set this up for me, <laughs> you wish you didn't have to write a book like this. You say that you wrote this book as a citizen, as an advocate for factual journalism, and as a new dad who thinks about what kind of world my children are going to inherit you wrote this book with a fair amount of righteous indignation. <laughs> why, why was it important to write this book about Fox News? Yeah, do you ever do you ever wonder how we are going to explain this to our <laughs> children and our grandchildren someday? Yeah. I, I have a three year old and a one year old, so I am I am pretty confident that uh, that they will only have very dim memories of what has gone on the 
the past few years, if, if any memories at all. I suppose it depends on whether the president's reelected or not. But I, I did want to put all of this, this into a book because I think the Fox-Trump feedback loop is unlike anything we've seen in media before. I know there was a history of the partisan press 100 years ago. I know that, you know, some MSNBC hosts uh, might have, you know, called the White House every once in a while in the Obama years, but come on, there's never been anything like this. And uh, rather than the president being helped by Fox and getting useful information and learning the truth, you know, he gets swamped by misinformation and uh, actually fake news. So I I tried to write it all down for history. And and also, to be honest, the, the biggest reason why I wrote this is because so many sources of Fox were calling me, telling me that the place has gone off the rails, that they used to be really proud of the content, and now they're not anymore. And I can see why, based on a lot of the propaganda in prime time. So, Brian, one of the points you make that's really interesting is, for a lot of people, Fox has been derided during the Trump era as state TV, as a network that essentially serves as a propaganda arm of his White House But you make the point that it's not so much that Fox is echoing the talking points of Donald Trump. It's that Fox is supplying the talking (laughs) points of Donald Trump. Now, tell us how you reach that conclusion and what it tells us about this relationship. Yeah, I think this is crucial to understand that that a lot of what he is saying and, and, and claiming is coming straight from Fox and Friends and is coming straight from the Tucker Carlson show. You know, it's, it's not coming from the newscast on Fox. It's coming from the hard right talk shows. I had producers at the network confide in me and say, you know, we began to program our show knowing that Trump was watching. Um, we used to pick our stories. We, we, we pick our stories based on knowing he's watching. And, you know, you can go back to the very beginning of the Trump years. Um, it was the first full week of his uh, presidency. January 26th, where he sees a banner on the screen at like 5.50 in the morning that talks about Chelsea Manning. It says, ungrateful traitor, which, by the way, that's, that doesn't belong in a banner for a news segment, but okay, that's what the banner said. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, the president's tweeting out the words, ungrateful traitor. And there was this scramble to figure out what the president was talking about. I remember this very vividly because reporters at CNN and elsewhere didn't know where the president was getting this random talking point from. And sure enough, I logged in, I found that it was on Fox and Friends. And uh, even the host of the, the show, Abby Huntsman, she didn't know where Trump got it until, until I tweeted out, oh yeah, it looks like the president just stole the words right off the screen. That was the beginning of hundreds of times of the president getting something from Fox, running with it. And the problem again with this is it's, it's not like he's getting the most valuable, fact-checked, high-quality news in the world. No, he's getting cherry-picked, conservative, conspiracy theory, propaganda stuff. One of the examples I'll never forget is when he started attacking the city of Baltimore, because remember when Elijah Cummings was doing oversight work involving immigration at the border? So Fox and Friends brought on a conservative woman from Baltimore to attack um, Cummings and attack um, and support Trump and complain about what is a real problem, right? Parts of Baltimore are really impoverished. There's a lot of trash, a lot of problems. But Trump heard this segment on Fox and Friends and said that Cummings' entire district was a rat-infested hellhole where no one would want to live. And, you know, I grew up in Maryland. I know that district well. What the, what the hell is it? Are we allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah, yes, you are. What the it's fuck welcome. is we talking about? We encourage about, it, by the way. About an entire yeah. district of so many, such a, such a wonderful part of Maryland. You know, so my point is, 
This went on for a week. <laughs> Fox focused on this Baltimore thing for a week. Trump was tweeting attacks and Fox was covering it every day. And they never admitted that it started on their show. They never said this was all because of Fox and Friends. Brian, you called it a feedback loop. Some people call the relationship symbiotic. It also has, it has had a profound effect on Fox itself, right? Yes. I mean, so what has that impact been? Because it seems to me that the anchors, their egos are massaged by Trump, by driving Trump's words and, and, and even his policies, that things have gotten worse in the last few years, partly because of that symbiotic relationship. That, that's absolutely right. And, and a lot of people who confided in me said, you know, I was proud to work at a conservative leading channel. There there's a, needs to be a lot of room in the marketplace for this. And there should be. There should be lots of conservative news out there, conservative opinion. But as one anchor there said, we're not right leaning anymore. We have fallen over. And that's what happens when you don't have checks and balances. You don't have standards and practices. You don't have accountability for screw-ups. You get in a situation where the incentive structure is all wrong. The incentive structure is to lean into the propaganda, to book the Trumpiest guests you can, to make excuses for the unexcusable, to defend the indefensible. And, and that's really the, that's what's happened. It's, it was never... This didn't happen overnight, right? This didn't happen after one big meeting, company-wide town hall. No, this was 100 steps down a Trumpier path. Now, Roger Ailes was pushed out in, in 2016. Right. Uh, and then, obviously, later he, he died. But would this have happened if Ailes had still been at the helm? Or did he have a kind of a force of personality that he might have prevented it? Many, many staffers there say, no, this would not have happened. They say Ailes, if he had still been at the network and if he was still alive, he would have stood up to Trump at least some of the time, right? So when Trump attacks news anchors at Fox because he wants more opinion, less news, people say Ailes would have stood up to him and said, you're not coming on Hannity's show if you keep bashing Chris Wallace. Now, all of this is hypothetical now. We don't know Ailes died in 2017. But it's, it's a widespread view at Fox that the channel would be different if he were still there because he was a strong leader, even though we know of his sins and they are disgusting. We know of his abuse of staff. He did lead the network with an iron fist. Everybody knew what he wanted. And when he left, there was a leadership vacuum and Trump filled it. And I think that's a, a big part of the story is a leadership story or, or a story about a lack of leadership at Fox. So, Brian, you mentioned the uh, Chris Wallace, um, who did uh, that. I think what most people would agree was a pretty good, tough oh, interview yeah. Yeah. of Trump just a few weeks ago. And so I just wonder, you know, some might say you're painting too broad a brush here. You focus a lot on Fox and Friends and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, all of which are all of whom are, of course, major figures within the Fox universe. But it's not the totality of right. Fox. And right. there are straight news reporters. There are people like Brett Baer who do try to call it down the middle and yeah. people like Chris Wallace. So what would you say to those who are saying, well, look, you're focused on, you know, a few clearly partisan anchors as yeah. there are at MSNBC, for example, but the totality, but the network, but that's not the totality of Fox News. Yeah, I, I'd say we should focus on the biggest stars with the biggest audiences, and those are the pro-Trump propagandists. In fact, Fox's viewers don't really want news nearly as much. They turn the channel when news comes on, and then they come back to Fox when the talk shows resume. Not every viewer, of course, uh, but you know the audience for 
Tucker Carlson's program is twice as large as the audience for Brett Baer's newscast. So this is not just about Fox or what Fox is doing. It's also about the right wing. It's also about the American right, uh, the Republican Party, the Trump base and what they want and why they're so distrusting of news that they even distrust Fox's news, right? They even distrust, distrust Fox's news anchors and prefer Sean Hannity instead. This yeah. is um, and Trump himself has complained about Fox. He's complained he about its polls, he and he's complained about some of its news coverage. Uh, about Chris Wallace, for example. You know, Wallace yeah. was asked at a Columbia journalism event in February of this year. Do you ever think that Fox is using the quality of your work to truth wash prime time? Well, I think that's a very common critique, a very fair comment. Wallace said, I think you're underselling the intelligence of the viewer. I think the viewer knows that what goes on in prime time is opinion. Yes, the viewers do know that, but they prefer that. They, they don't want to hear about Trump's lies and scandals and mistakes. They only want to hear the, the, the positive. Wallace also said there's a firewall between news and opinion, and that I completely disagree with. I think that wall has been taken down brick by brick, and, and you can see it in the bookings on the shows, and you can see it in the, in the commentary on the newscasts. I don't think there is that firewall anymore, and that was a big reason why Shep Smith left. I think one of the uh, parts of, of hoax that is has the most uh, new information is about Shep Smith getting so frustrated at Fox and battling Tucker Carlson and feeling like he's losing to Tucker that eventually he decided to up and quit. And uh, I don't know if that would have happened if Ailes had still been there. Brian, I mean, by certain measures and certainly measures that not just Fox News goes by, but network news programs generally, they are winning, right? I mean, $2 billion in profits, winning the rating battle night after night after night. I think you said 20 Fox personalities who've gone into the Trump administration, including a cabinet member. So they you know, have power inside the government as well. <laughs> um, what incentives are there, uh, is there at all, other than books like yours, for Fox to change its ways? Hmm. Well, you're absolutely right about the, the, the winning part. I write in the book, the other networks are amazed by Fox's ratings. Fox wakes up at the TV equivalent of third base while everybody else is just warming up. Um, you know, at, at four in the morning when other networks have basically zero viewers, Fox still already has half a million. And those are not people that just fell asleep watching TV. Like that is an actual audience that's awake and watching. And then it, it rises into the millions during Fox and Friends. And it's, it's unlike anything else in television. It really is. And, and that's why the network's on a path to $2 billion in profits. So as a business story, this is absolutely a success story. This is a how to, how, you know, what to do sort of story. But from a moral and an ethical standpoint, from a journalistic standpoint, it's a what not to do story because of the amount of misinformation. We you know, mentioned the Seth Rich story, you know, that murder mystery that you all have covered in, in, in your podcast in Conspiracy Land. That kind of content getting on the air that should embarrass the Murdochs. That should embarrass the parent company. And, and it does to the degree that once in a while we do see accountability taken and, and we do see risks being slapped, but not very often. But I guess I'm avoiding your question because it's a very hard question. <laughs> yeah. What, what is it to change? Why would they change? Well, I, I think um, shareholder pressure, but we haven't seen a lot of that. Advertiser pressure, but there has been some of that. And Fox has been able to handle it thanks to my pillow. You, 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 and I, I mean that, you know, Mike Lindell at MyPillow does prop up Tucker Carlson, running more ads on Tucker's show than any other advertiser by far. And he, so he basically fills in where other advertisers are unwilling to go. 
So, um, Brian, um, we've all watched Succession, that great cable series loosely based on the Murdoch dynasty. And there is, uh, in reality, uh, <laughs> a split among the Murdochs where you have James, a relative liberal, and I guess teed off against uh, Lachlan, who is the relative conservative. But is that tension between the two of them influencing Fox News at all? And how do you see it, that clash playing out? It's not influencing Fox's content right now because uh, Lachlan, the CEO, is firmly in charge and James, the more liberal brother, is, is out of the company. But I do think it has the, the potential to impact the content in the future. And, and, the, and the reason I say that is that um, in the event Rupert Murdoch dies, there will be a fight for control of Fox Corporation. The Murdoch Family Trust will have four votes. Each adult child has one vote. So Lachlan has one vote. He's more conservative. James has a vote. He's much more liberal. He supported Pete Buttigieg in the primaries. He's off on his own now, making investments in startups. And then there are two daughters, Prudence and Elizabeth. And the theory goes like this. If James, Elizabeth, and Prudence team up, they can take control away from Lachlan, and then they can make change at Fox News. Now, is this a liberal fantasy or is this a real possibility? I don't know. And I say in the book, time will tell. But I, I think it is a real possibility, and here's why. I think James Murdoch is so disgusted by what Fox News has become, so embarrassed by it, that he does want to make change. I, I, he would never become CEO of Fox News, but he could install someone new who would fancy old-fashioned things like enforce you know, journalistic standards. But all of this is predicated on in the event of Rupert Murdoch no longer being with us and... He doesn't seem like he's uh, <laughs> oh, Sumner Redstone. <laughs> Sumner Redstone hung on for quite a while, so you know maybe Rupert has uh, yeah. something else to um, shoot for. Now, speaking of Murdoch, uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, you also confirm it's one of the nuggets in your book that Trump sent Bill Barr, the current Attorney General, to go meet with. Uh, Murdoch. I think they had other business to talk about media, antitrust issues or whatever it was. But among the things that you say he said to Murdoch is to is to muzzle Judge Andrew Napolitano, who has been very critical of Donald Trump now uh, for some time. That, of course, has been denied by uh, Barr's uh, spokesperson, what else do you know about that episode and Barr's willingness to be Trump's errand boy in that um, context? Well, I think if we start from the the from this position, which is why is the Attorney General meeting with Rupert Murdoch in the first place? Right? Does that does that make any sense to begin with? I, I would start from that from that place. He went to his home, right? It was yes, was it in his and, home? and this was reported yeah. at the time, and and it was so interesting because you know the New York Times broke the news of this meeting. And then, you know, a day or two later, Shep Smith suddenly leaves Fox News. And outside the White House, a reporter shouts to Trump, why is Bill Barr meeting with Rupert Murdoch? Like all of a sudden there's this conspiracy theory that says, and it's a left-wing conspiracy theory, that says Bill Barr just got Shep Smith fired. And, and the point I make in the book is, no, that had nothing to do with it. Shep's departure was in the works for weeks. But they, they did have this meeting. They did have this meeting, Rupert and Barr, and they talked about media consolidation, they talked about criminal justice reform, you know, the, the typical things you might talk about at dinner with an attorney general. But, you know, what, what I say in the book is it was also about muzzling the judge. And that's quoting an insider who described this. And the point I make in the next, in the next, in the next paragraph is 
no one was explicitly told to muzzle the judge. No one at Fox was told to take Napolitano off the air. But Napolitano did see his airtime shrink. And, and that might be a complete coincidence. Let's just say it is a complete coincidence. But this is what happens at Fox when you are countering Trump. When, you, when you're on the air and you're Judge Napolitano and you're saying that the president is guilty of, uh, of criminal conduct and that impeachment is completely plausible. And go, when you're on the air saying that, you're not going to get on the air much. You're not going to get booked by as many shows. One day they decided not to give him the resources to film web videos. I had producers at Fox say to me, well, why would we book him? Everyone, our, our viewers hate him. Why would we do it? It would kill our ratings. So I think that's the dynamic. That's unique to Fox, right? That's unique to Fox. I had a, one of Trump's aides, Jenna Ellis, on my program a couple months ago. I wasn't worried about my ratings. I wasn't worried about whether viewers would want to watch that, you know, would want to watch a Trump person, um, a Trump aide. But at Fox, that's a very real issue, I think. So, uh, Brian, you talked uh, before about what a success story Fox News has been as a business. Um, Clydeman and I were talking before the show about the success story, your success story oh, as a TV critic. I think we were both fascinated to read in the book how you got started in this business, creating a blog in college, Cable Newser, that started to get so much traction that within a few years, Rod. Roger Ailes is sending undercover a woman <laughs> to try and date you so she can suck up inside information about what you were up to. Yeah, uh, fascinating story. <laughs> it's in the book, so tell us um, first how you got started and then uh, leading up to that delicious story about Ailes' uh, attempt to uh, dig up inside information from your blog. I know listeners can't see me, but I'm blushing right now. <laughs> I, 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 did, I did fall for this pretty hard at the time. You know, look, I launched TV News because I thought cable news wasn't getting enough attention, wasn't getting enough scrutiny, wasn't getting enough coverage. This was in the mid-2000s. The Iraq war was raging. You know, cable news was driving the national conversation. But the New York Times, paper I love, used to work there, it was more focused on broadcasting cable. So I, I launched this blog because I was really obsessed with cable news. And... Fox News noticed it right away. Fox was the first network to take it seriously. They saw an opportunity to leak things to me, to provide me ratings and information and, you know, that sort of thing. But they also wanted to know my weak points. They also wanted to know what they could use against me. This was typical Fox News PR. They did it to lots of reporters. Although I don't know of anybody else who went out on these fake dates. So the, <laughs> this, was, this was a Fox News intern, this PR intern who was told to friend me on Facebook, look through my photos, try to find anything they could use against me. They how did, how did she come? Yeah. How did she come on to you? Oh, gosh, I don't know. And if I did, I would be too embarrassed to tell you. <laughs> but what I do remember is, I mean, I, I lived in Maryland, whenever I would come up to New York, you know, we, we met up uh, multiple occasions, went out to Union Square. Like This, this was you know, picture this picture. I'm a college student. Okay. And here's this older woman showing me the big city. I was, I was pretty enchanted. One of these occasions ended up on the rooftop of her apartment building. There was no funny business, but I, I, thought, I thought they were dates, or at least I, I started to tell myself I was on these dates, when in fact she was scribbling notes and emailing her bosses at the end of the night. So, yeah, explain, um, explain how you... <laughs> 
uncovered this. And, and look, this is amateurish compared to Roger Ailes' real black ops. I want to be the first to say like this. <laughs> he had much more sophisticated operations against <laughs> others later. But um, she later told me she was she was embarrassed. We've, we've talked about it since. I've seen some of the emails, some of the memos. <laughs> Brian wow. received a phone call from the CBS News PR chief. They spoke, I mean, like that's that's literally what this was. And, uh, and Ailes wanted to have all these downloads. Look, he was so paranoid and so political. You know, he ran Fox as a news operation and a political operation, and he had enemies, and he wanted to know what these reporters and, and his critics were, were doing and saying. So th- that's why I tell the story. I think it speaks to, to Ailes' paranoia, and that paranoia still exists at Fox. There were some people that were, you know, totally convinced that if I, they talked to me, they would, they would get caught. But, um, but a lot of people actually did talk, I think, because they're frustrated by what the network has become. And I should say I'm happily married now, and so is the intern. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not, and you're but not, not to each other. Not to each other, right? Let's be clear. I got one more serious question uh, for you, Brian, which is the Fox, what the Fox secret sauce is. And I think you say that it's, it's Fox is an identity. It's a way of life. I mean, there is a huge cultural component to this. What did you learn about that in all of your years of reporting uh, the Fox story? I think that's really underappreciated. And, and I'm glad that you pulled it out because I, I try to make this point loudly in the beginning of the book to appreciate what Ailes and Murdoch built. I am not out to just uh, harangue Fox News. The network filled a marketplace void. It absolutely did. It spoke to conservatives in the country like nothing ever had before. And it became more than a TV network. It is like a city hall or a senior citizen center. It is almost a way of life for its viewers. Its personalities, you know, sometimes I, I look at CNN and MSNBC and Fox and the folks on Fox are laughing. They, they are having a good time. Uh, now, sometimes the news is too bleak for me to be able to laugh, but they, they find ways to inject entertainment and personality and passion. These are all things that television networks could learn from Fox, perhaps. Unfortunately, though, it, you know, they also misinformed the president and his aides and millions of people, and that's the not-so-funny part. I want to talk a little about the impact that this has had on Fox's rivals, including CNN. Clearly, MSNBC staked out its ground that it was going to be a liberal, progressive network early on. CNN did not. But increasingly, under the in, during the Trump era, CNN has become quite aggressive in, you would say, correcting Donald Trump when he says things that are not true. But it's been pretty relentless. Your fact checkers, your chirons, Trump says something once again false. And, you know, there's a perception among some that CNN, in particular, has fallen into Trump's trap of, you know, being the opposition party. And I want to read you actually something that Jonathan Carl, the ABC News chief White House correspondent, wrote in his book. We had him on a couple of weeks ago. Front row at the Trump show. Front row at the Trump show. And he talks about the challenges of covering Trump with all the falsehoods that he issues. But he goes on to write this. But a free press is not the opposition party. Our role is to inform the public, seek the truth, ask tough questions, and attempt to hold those in power accountable by shining a spotlight on what they are doing. But we are not the opposition 
But in the Trump era, the free press has sometimes appeared like the opposition. For some, that's fine, but there's a crucial role for reporters and news organizations who strive for objectivity and balance. Our opinions, and we all have opinions, should be irrelevant. Even when the person you are covering treats you unfairly, or brands you disgusting, or a traitor or fake, a reporter should strive to treat him or her fairly. And I want to ask you, as you look at your own network's coverage of Trump, if you believe the network is making a concerted effort to treat Trump fairly, or are you or do you simply view him as such an existential threat to democracy in this country that you need to challenge, aggressively challenge him at all times? I think my colleagues and I view him as the story, not as the threat, not as the opportunity, not as entertainment, not as news, but it, he's the story. We have to cover the story wherever it takes us. And I don't want to speak for my for, for every anchor at CNN or every host at CNN. I think our job is to view, I think, I think my job is to view it through the eyes of a Trump supporter, through the eyes of a Trump critic, through the eyes of a non-voter, through the eyes of someone who doesn't even care about politics. We should keep all those perspectives in mind. And I, and I, and I think I do. I try to. I sometimes... Uh, maybe need to remind myself to do that more. I also need to remind myself to hear from voters directly and not just talking heads, which is obviously critical. But I don't think it's partisan for us to stand up for decency and truth and democracy. I don't think those are partisan categories or labels. I know that some want them to be because you know Trump hit us in the soft underbelly. When he started saying fake news in, in January 2017, that was our like that was our weak spot. That was our by by delegitimizing the news and saying anything you don't want to hear and anything you don't like is fake. That was our weak spot as a as an institution. We absolutely have to stand up for real news when he is saying that the news is fake. And uh, I suppose a lot of the differences between John Carl and I or or others at other networks, it's about tone, right? It's about what the right tone is in doing right. so in fact checking, and. Uh, I guess we won't know for 10 or 20 years if we are proud of the tone that we that we struck or the right or that balance we struck at the time. Well, the book uh, does as good a job as any book has done in um, dissecting the Fox and Trump relationship. Thank so, you, Brian. Um, we appreciate you coming on to talk about it. And um, we will continue to be watching reliable sources to see how you process all of this through the next couple of months into the election. <laughs> Thank right. you, Skull Duggar ears. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks a all lot, right. uh, Brian. Congratulations on the book. Thank you both. Have a good day. <laughs>